Archiver, The A's in Kansas City, is made possible with a grant for the Missouri Humanities Council and is a member of the Fountain City Frequency family of podcasts. I've always loved baseball. I never remember not liking it. And there's a photo that I'll share on the website of me in a little age uniform when I was probably three. So it's fitting that our story starts in 1956, the year of my birth, and we begin with the placid and carefree sounds of South Florida. Start with the sound of surf on sand, add the frisky fingers of the playful palms, sprinkle a baby blue sky with cotton candy clouds and the green clad trees with fat ripe fruit, and you've got West Palm Beach, Florida, winter playground of the Kansas City A's. March 1st is the magic date, and from all corners of the 48, people stream into this enchanted land. Out at Connie Mack Field, a group of groaning men run off the extra pounds of winter, and hone up muscles grown stiff and tired. In the hot sun, veteran stars like Enos Slaughter began to heat up for fair. The old batting eye gets the first workout. And infield drills put the keen competitive edge on defensive skills. Even basic fundamentals like sliding are given long, hard attention. Because ahead lies the trip back home and another season of battling in the American League. That's from a promotional film called The A's in Action, shown on local TV that chronicled much of that 1956 season. The Kansas City Athletics, and since the early 1900s they were known as the A's, are kicking off their second year in Kansas City in 56, after leaving Philadelphia where they played since 1901. On the surface, it all looks so good. A big lead team in town for the first time, a bigger municipal stadium, fans streaming into the ballpark. But if you peeked underneath, it was all built on sleazy backroom business deals and one-sided trades, all orchestrated by the hated New York Yankees and their hand-picked A's owner. It was one of the greatest conspiracies in sports history, one that would lead to turmoil in Kansas City, congressional hearings, and eventually, one of the craziest owners in all of professional sports. The podcast is Archiver, The A's in Kansas City. The episode, Fleeing Philadelphia. Me, I'm your host, Sam Zeff. Our story begins in 1901 with the brand new American League. Professional baseball had been around for decades and was already, as they say, the national pastime. To tell the story of the Kansas City Athletics, you have to start in Philadelphia, where they were a charter member of the new league. The first thing the A's did in 1901 was hire a former catcher named Cornelius McGillicuddy to manage the club, although from the time he was a boy in Massachusetts, he was called Connie Mack. Starting in 1886, Mack spent 11 seasons in the major leagues and a few more in the minors before being hired on by the A's. Now, this is crucial. He also bought 25% of the team, and later the Mack family would own the club outright. As they do today, baseball managers always wore the team's uniform. Not Mack, he wore a suit and often a straw hat. It's hard now to think of Philadelphia as anything but a Phillies town, but for the first half of the 20th century, 
baseball there was dominated by the A's. They were World Series champs in 1910, 11, and 13, went through some lean times, but roared back in the 20s and 30s when they were world champs in 1929 and 1930. To learn more about the A's and their eventual demise, I traveled to Philadelphia to interview this man. Okay, uh, Mitchell Nathanson. Uh, I got interested in Philadelphia baseball because I was a Phillies fan, and I was always interested in the dynamic between the Phillies and the A's and why it was that the A's left town rather than the Phillies. Nathanson's day job is at Villanova University where he teaches law, but he's written extensively on all kinds of Philadelphia sports history. Well, for the 54 years that the A's and the Phillies played together in Philadelphia, the A's outdrew the Phillies, I think, 40 times. So there were only a few years where the Phillies ever outdrew the A's. And unlike in Chicago, where you would be a Cubs fan or a White Sox fan, or New York is better, where you would be a Giants fan but not a Dodgers fan. In Philadelphia, there were people who were A's fans who didn't hate the Phillies. There was nothing to hate. They were just innocuous. They were invisible almost. There were no rivalries in Philadelphia between the Phillies and the A's. The Phillies were an afterthought. Um, The A's were the team that people followed. So led by Mac, the A's and their fans enjoyed a couple of dynasties and success at the box office. Mac eventually owned the team and Shy Park and ran the whole operation. But then came World War II. Headed by 83-year-old Connie Mack, Dean of Baseball, the athletics take up their chores for 1946 at West Palm Beach. In Connie's promising crop of pitchers is Dick Fowler, who played with the A's last year, and Bobo Newsom, who also was a tower of strength in 1945. Another standby of the athletics is Russ Christopher. Yes, they're good, but it's Cornelius McGillicuddy, the old mastermind who can show them how it's done even if that old soup bone does creak a little. Here's hoping baseball's grand old man will be in there pitching for many another year. The A's were awful in 1946, 1947, 1948. Well, to be honest, they were awful for the rest of their time in Philadelphia. By the time that newsreel footage was shot, it wasn't just Connie Mack's soup bone that was ailing. His mind was shot. He would call out players who played for him decades before. He brought in his inept sons, Earl and Roy, into top jobs in the organization. Those two were battling Connie Mack Jr., Mack's son from his first marriage, over the future of the franchise. American League owners were worried. Puny crowds meant less take for visiting teams. They wanted the A's out of Philadelphia. So the hated New York Yankees hatched a scheme that would enrich the team both on and off the field. But first, to make their plan work, they had to get the A's to Kansas City. I'm very happy to announce that after an all-day session, the American League Club members this evening approved the transfer of the Philadelphia Athletics to Kansas City. And I also would like to welcome into the American League Mr. Arnold Johnson as the new owner of the Kansas City Ball Club. Thank you, Mr. Harridge. I'm very pleased to know that I've been accepted into the American League. I'll do my best to 
bring up a good team, provide a lot of competition in the league. That's a bit of newsreel sound from October 1954. American League President Will Hartage was introducing Arnold Johnson, the new owner of the A's, to the baseball world. By the way, it was an odd-looking news conference. Harridge was sitting in a chair, and Johnson was sitting on the armrest, his arm around the American League president's shoulders. But Johnson would not be in that news conference, and a big league owner, and Kansas City would not be getting a major league team without the Yankees owners Dan Topping and Del Webb. The Yankees already had a footprint in Kansas City. Their top minor league team, the Blues, had been playing there for decades. In fact, Johnson bought the stadium at 22nd of Brooklyn from Topping and Webb. Again, here's author Mitch Nathanson. Johnson pretty much owes everything he has to Topping and Webb. In addition, um, if they move to Kansas City, the stadium has to be refurbished, and Dell Webb's construction company is going to handle the construction, so there's money for, right, that goes directly into Dell Webb's pocket. Uh, and they know that Johnson is a the guy they can control. And really, you know, the Yankees were successful for 40 years, and you could say they were a great organization, but they were great because they were taking players from other clubs to maintain their dynasty. This would become an important part of the A's, Yankees, Johnson cabal. But we'll cover that in a later episode. The drama over what would happen to the A's was keeping fans in Kansas City and Philadelphia on the edge of their seats, and league owners were pulling their hair out as the Mack family fought over whether to sell the club to Johnson, find a way to keep it in the family, or sell the A's to buyers in Philadelphia. At one point in this drama, Roy Mack, the son appointed by Connie to run the club, had actually made a deal with local businessmen to buy the A's and keep them in Philadelphia. And the American League owners had already approved that deal. But Johnson and the Yankees weren't going to let that happen. Johnson flies from Chicago directly to Philadelphia, drives straight to Roy's house, marches in, and made him a deal he couldn't refuse. He offered more money for Roy's shares in the club and a juicy job in the front office in Kansas City. So Roy decided to switch his loyalties back to Arnold Johnson and to make the deal with Johnson. Bob Worthington is with the Philadelphia A's Historical Society. Now that created all kinds of problems. Number one, the agreement with the Philadelphia Syndicate had already been signed, and that was the deal that was going to be considered at the next American League ownership meeting in late October. The second issue, of course, was Roy had agreed to transfer his loyalty back to Arnold Johnson and accept that deal, but Connie and Earl hadn't. The saving grace for Roy Mack was that the deal with the Philadelphia Syndicate was subject to approval by the American League to agree to that agreement, to accept it, to condone it, to approve it, so that Roy Mack and his father and brother could sell the stock to the Philadelphia Syndicate. When they showed up at the ownership meeting in late October, this would have been October 28th, all the American League owners walked into the room assuming they were simply going to vote on the deal for the Philadelphia Syndicate, transfer ownership of the athletics to that group, that the athletics would stay in Philadelphia and be done with it. Imagine the American owner's surprise when the time came for the vote and Roy Mack raised his hand with three other clubs to disapprove the deal. (laughs) 
The American League owners were thunderstruck. Those who weren't aware that he had switched loyalties back to um, Arnold Johnson. Charles Comiskey Jr., the owner of the, the White Sox, was livid that the Max couldn't even agree amongst themselves on who to sell the group, to, who to sell the franchise to. That they had made this deal with the Philadelphia Syndicate and suddenly had walked away from it. So was the Philadelphia Syndicate. They were outside the room. The American League owners' meeting was secret waiting to just be informed, yes, congratulations, you now own the Philadelphia Athletics. One of the more unpleasant aspects of this was the fact that Connie and Earl, Mac, were also unaware as they went into that meeting that Roy, who was sitting at the table, he was the representative of the Athletics in the American League ownership meetings, was going to vote against the deal. They had only signed day, days before. So at the end of the day, the Philadelphia Syndicate deal was disapproved by the American League simply because they didn't approve it by a majority, and it was a dead deal. The syndicate fell, fell apart very quickly at that point. That left the Mack family to deal with Arnold Johnson. Now, Arnold Johnson already had Roy Mack in the bag. He needed to still get approval from Connie and Earl to sell their shares of stock to him as well, so he could have complete ownership of the Philadelphia Athletics and the ballpark, Shy Park, at Connie Mack Stadium. Finally, the deal was done. Hart soared in Kansas City, where business leaders and politicians had been working for months to lure the team from Philadelphia. Perhaps not aware of just how much a role the Yankees played and the scheme they were ready to hatch. But by December, the downtown Macy's was advertising Kansas City A's ties for $2. KC Athletics blazes forth in pink, the ad in the morning Kansas City Times raved. He'll wear it with pride. And pride in the city's brand new big league team, off the damn charts. And when they did come into Kansas City, they were flying into the downtown airport. They seen so many people celebrating that they made the, the plane circle the city several times just to see how excited the fans were in Kansas City for them to be here. Kansas City transitions from a cow town to a big league city. That's in our next episode of Archiver, The A's in Kansas City. The podcast is produced by Matt Hodap in the studios of KCUR 89.3 in Kansas City and is made possible by a grant from the Missouri Humanities Council. Archiver, The A's in Kansas City is produced with Do Good Productions, where Nancy Seelan is executive producer, and with the Center for Midwestern Studies at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, where Diane Moody-Burke is director. I'm Sam Zeff, and I'll see you on the next Archiver.